I think it's 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 liberating in a way to begin to think about how can we actually live differently and we it's it's exciting to actually think about all the things that would have to change and then you can see that it's not impossible to live in a different I mean I think something like rewilding it would not be uh hard to do necessarily as in once we actually pull away we I think we will see a very different world where uh and we would see um animals uh coming back you know I mean recovering from their endangered status and so forth we would see you know larger flocks of birds and, and things like this and I think it would also create the subject we want to have in such a society to think about like Margaret Thatcher when she privatized council housing she created a, like a million little Thatcherites overnight right and that he would defend those those private property rights that they had had come uh, into possession and we need to think how do we create people who would want to defend the natural world and want to defend socialism and uh, I think for having people be able to see the sublime beauty of nature is definitely part of that. There's a really nice book by uh, a socialist named Richard Seymour, and he used to be this like, cranky Trotskyist, and uh, you know he was very critical and he made fun of uh, yeah, left uh, hippies and, and uh, environmentalists. He thought it was a you know, bourgeois sentimentality to care about animals. And then he had this crisis because of climate change, and he began to learn to see. And the question is, how does one see the world differently, to see the beauty in nature, to care about um, other life outside of your own life? And uh, that has to be part of the process as well. You know, I became a bird watcher during the pandemic, and that has been like a really life-changing experience in many ways. It's uh, uh, to just experience the world differently, where I'm like, constantly listening for birds or looking for birds, and I want to go out and then I need to have that cathartic experience where I'm so focused outside of myself, um, where I'm paying attention to the world around me, and I can see beauty, uh, and also just how difficult it is to you know, be a bird in today's world. Like it's, uh, it's not easy, so to develop that empathy as well. And I think we need to think about ways to get people to care and get people to see uh, how things are. I mean, Aldo Leopold wrote that uh, once you start learning about ecology, you see a world of wounds, right? And I think we need to get people to, to see that. Troy Vitesse is an environmental historian, researcher, and writer. In his writings, he discusses the need to dismantle the world we have created in order to make the Earth system more stable. In doing so, he weaves together knowledge from environmental economics, animal studies, a critique of neoliberal systems, and the history of energy. His book, Half-Earth Socialism, co-authored with Drew Pentagrass, reactivates the imaginary of the left 
and of environmental movements by outlining possible strategies to defend life on the planet. In this podcast, we talk to Troy Vitesse about veganism, ecology, and geoengineering, and about neoliberalism and the environmental crisis. We look at past examples of vegan socialist experiences and understand the urgency of including animal rights in radical thought. We also examine the tension between nature and the market, accepting the impossibility of leading with the climate crisis through eco-modernist techno-solutions. Troy Vitesse speaks about golf and birds and about fiction as a necessary space in which to imagine futures, literature for thinking by planning and charting new horizons. from my work as a historian where I study neoliberals, right? And I think a lot of people at some level don't give neoliberals credit. They just say, well, neoliberals, uh, they are just promoting privatization or things that the upper class want. And one doesn't really need to understand them. As in they're just market fundamentalists, they're just libertarians and all that. And they actually have a quite sophisticated philosophy and they're able to build out many policies from that philosophy, and they're extremely well organized, and there's a diversity within them. Like they, they agree with the Hayekian truth that markets are uh, the most efficient information processing institution in human history, better than science, better than democracy, right? And therefore, everything should be uh, guided by the market. That's the basis of neoliberalism. And from there, they can do many things. And that's different from classical liberalism, from like Adam Smith and all that. And so I was reading a lot of their, their work, and I also was focused on how do neoliberals plan to deal with the environmental crisis. And, you know, to put it uh, in, in a short way, they obviously don't care about extinction and eutrophication and, and, and problems like that. And they just want to make sure that there isn't this green regulatory state that emerges and then puts fetters on the market. That's the, what they want to avoid. So they will have, uh, and Philip Murawski writes about this, who's a historian of, of neoliberalism uh, and wrote a very nice book called Never Let a Serious Crisis Go to Waste. In the last chapter, he says there's denial but again, neoliberals are not stupid. They know climate change is real. Then you have cap and trade, which doesn't work, right? And then you have geoengineering, and that's their, their approach. I, at some level, admired the ruthlessness of the neoliberals. Like they believe in what they believe in, and they will fight to get there. I think the left environmentalists, although people, of course, are are trying very hard to block pipelines and things like that. I think we, because we don't know what we want, we cannot fight in the same way. We cannot fight as hard. Um, and there's that, that incredible creativity because they have that 
philosophical foundation. Of course, the problem is their philosophical foundation is wrong. Markets are very bad at integrating certain kinds of knowledge, for sure. But I wanted, or I felt like the left and environmentalists have to figure out and do a similar project in terms of rebuilding their philosophical foundation and be like, what is socialism, right? What does it actually mean? Um, and what is, uh, what kind of environmental uh, 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 policy or what kind of, uh, what, what does it look like to have an ecologically stable society, right? That should be worked out as well. Uh, so that's how I arrived at this project, is this dissatisfaction with these vague books on the left and, and from, from environmentalists. So and that's why the book is really part of the socialist calculation debate. As in we're debating with Hayek and we're trying to defeat Hayek's critique of socialism, but as we put it, like out Hayeking Hayek, right? Uh, to say, if you do take questions of knowledge seriously, then you can't think it's more important to manage uh, uh, nature rather than the market because nature is much more complex than the market, right? So if we have to choose between controlling one or the other, we have to control you know, the economy so we can let this unknowable natural world uh, function because we depend upon it. And that's, that's the main argument of the book. And then we draw on Otto Neurath quite a bit. And uh, again, Otto Neurath is this uh, war planner and, and designer. And his proposal for planning in the Bavarian Soviet Republic uh, in 1919 is what set off the socialist calculation debate. And then neoliberalism uh, emerges from that debate and is um, and creates itself in the mere image of Neurath's argument. So for Neurath, socialism is this conscious control over the economy, and one needs to make the economy visible uh, to ordinary people so they can participate democratically. And that's why he set up museums and engaged in... Uh, developing uh, graphic design. He has something called isotype to make the economy visible to people, and he would uh, have exhibitions. And then people could imagine controlling the economy. Uh, and then you would have these large plans, these total plans that were based on many different metrics instead of a single metric. Um, the, uh, because if you have one metric, you always end up at an irrational outcome. And that's, what the problem of, that's the problem of capitalism. Uh, but it would, it would be the same problem if you had, let's say, an eco-dictatorship or you had a socialist uh, society built upon, let's say, CO2 or labor time. It also end up at a bad outcome. So you need to have this, these many uh, metrics and these big plans, and then we would vote on them. And that idea is uh, very compelling to us. And I think it's, it's revealing that Neurath has been largely forgotten by the left. Right? Many people don't know about him. And uh, the trajectory for the socialist calculation debate has been the focus on market socialism. So people like Lange and Lerner in the 1930s and many other uh, successors who say we can have socialism but we'll use market mechanisms to guide socialist planning. And we'll use neoclassical economics uh, for that. And I think that has been a, a mistake, and we need to return to this Neuratian problem. So, it's, so definitely, I think Hayek, <laughs> Neurath are very big influences on the book. Um, and then I think this, this desire to... Uh, I, actually, well, I think the utopian socialist tradition has been very important as well, and I felt in some ways deprived of my heritage, I would say as a, a vegan 
socialist because, um, and because if you go to left-wing circles, many people are very hostile to animal rights and they want to eat meat and, and all that. But when I found out that many of the earliest socialists were vegetarians and that animal rights was important for these, these radical thinkers, uh, people like John Os- uh, Oswald, who was a Scottish Jacobin and very important in the French Revolution, he was a vegetarian and wrote one of the earliest texts in defense of animal rights. Uh, so finding out that all these people were vegetarian and socialist was really a, a shock to me. And I thought, we should be talking about this all the time, but we're not. Instead, socialism and animal rights are seen as uh, opposite goals, right? I mean, animal rights are the orphan of the left, as uh, Kimlicka says. Um, so that was also a big, a big influence. And then I started just reading lots of uh, ancient Greek stuff, um, partially because I was in the U.S., and in the U.S. they have these great books classes where you teach undergrads these, these classic uh, works. And I actually hadn't read a huge number of them because uh, where I was educated in Canada, that's, that tradition doesn't exist. So uh, I started to engage more uh, with Plato and, and other thinkers. And, and so we kind of drew all these weird things uh, together for the book, yeah. It's funny that we wrote this book and people have criticized us for the vegan aspect of it because we say that veganism is very important and solves a lot of problems, makes a lot of things easier, and it should just be part of the liberatory tradition of the left, right? And people are saying, well, that's totally impossible, it's impractical, You're gonna, no one's going to like this. And then they say, well, you know, this, the planning part, that's fine. And I think... Planning a global economy is going to be harder than eating lentils, you know, for dinner, right? Like, I know how to cook lentils. I think planning the economy is much, much more difficult. And I, I think we have this, like, weird um, uh, arrangement of priorities where we want to, say, decarbonize and focus on the grid and have some kind of fully automated luxury communism. Uh, but we won't talk about the easy things, actually, which would be uh, rewilding and, and, and veganism because we don't want to annoy people. And I think if it were any other sector of the economy, we would definitely have transformed the food sector by now, right? As in, it's a relatively small part of the economy. Uh, it's not even worth very much, not that money really matters. Uh, not that many people are involved. It, it is the, by far the leading cause of mass extinction, Right, and biodiversity loss. It is by far the largest use of, of fresh water, uh, which is a huge problem in Spain, for instance. Um, and the kind of greenhouse gases that it emits is uh, methane, uh, pre- predominantly. And methane is a short-lived but extremely reactive greenhouse gas, but 100 times more reactive than carbon dioxide. So if you stop those emissions, then, you know, and, and my co-author Drew talks about this, you actually would see an effect on the climate like geoengineering, as in you see a rapid cooling happen right away without the side effects of geoengineering. So it's a huge number of benefits, right? But we don't talk about it, right? Because we don't want to piss people off. And uh, it just means 
that we're going to be waiting for these techno fixes like lab meat. And I think that is also delusional. I think that people are, are eating meat not for the taste. They're eating meat because they want to signify how macho they are, how rich they are, and this kind of thing. I mean, have people not read Veblen and his uh, theory of the leisure class? This idea that people want to show waste, right? If you can afford to waste resources, uh, it shows your social standing. And that is what meat is all about. And so having lab meat doesn't signify that. And I think you know, plenty of people will not want to eat it for a million reasons. And it'll just be like another niche product, you know, like, uh, you know, electric cars or organic food or something like that. I don't think it's going to make a big dent. And so we can't be afraid of politics. We need to talk about meat uh, all the time. And I think even in your daily life, you think, okay, uh, I can give up meat tomorrow. But if I don't live in a city that has good public transit, maybe I do need a car. And if I want to go somewhere, let's say if I live in the U.S., there's no good trains anywhere, I need to fly or something like that. These things are much harder to change than, than eating meat. And, uh, and I think that uh, individual level and the social level uh, are connected for a reason. That's not to say that uh, one person's uh, veganism matters. Like My veganism doesn't change anything. I'm well aware of that. And I think the socialist critic would then draw the wrong conclusion and then say, well, we should not be criticizing consumption then. And, but the real conclusion should be that we need to politicize this and we need to make it mandatory, right? If we can't just rely on people to give certain things up by choice, we need to actually have social movements and discussions and then politicize it and eventually ban certain things such as such as meat and I, we're comfortable talking about that for fossil fuels but we're not comfortable talking about that for meat and i think we have to to change that and in the book we 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 don't push uh, veganism or animal rights out of uh, an ethical case for these things they emerge kind of organically from this neuratian utopian socialist uh, approach. We say, if we want to achieve these goals, um, such as stopping extinction or uh, pandemics or having renewable energy, uh, we have to get rid of the meat industry because it takes up so much land and we have the problem of land scarcity. And it solves many other problems at a very low cost. Uh, I think one could also make the case reading Marx in a critical way uh, and from the broader socialist tradition of saying there is an ethical case for the liberation of animals, and uh, we should be making that uh, as well. But we need to be talking about this, and it's extremely frustrating that, that we're not. I think people, at some level, they don't realize how bad meat-eating is. Right? When you tell people how much land it takes, it's a shock, or that... Uh, uh, do, to what degree is a eutrophication, which is caused uh, a lot from, let's say, um, you know, manure from, from factory farms or from the runoff for feeding crops uh, for, for animals and so forth. Like many of these environmental problems do have uh, animal uh, agriculture as, as the main cause. And we always are talking about climate change, but we don't talk about this less sexy topic. And it would be nice in this Neuratian fashion to make these things clear in terms of design, as in I want like a Neuratian exhibition to be like, here's the environmental crisis. And I went to the Anthropocene series by Edward Bertinsky, 
who's a Canadian photographer, and he does these kind of very sublime, large-scale landscape pictures of devastated areas, such as you know mines and tailings ponds and things like this. And he did this whole thing in the Anthropocene. He didn't have one single picture on uh, on the livestock industry, which is the leading cause for the thing that we call the Anthropocene. If you actually read the Earth System Science literature, uh, Earth System scientists say, uh, climate change is just the tip of the iceberg. Really what the Anthropocene is about, if you want to reduce it to one thing, is biodiversity loss and extinction. Because the biosphere is this uh, conduit for all these important global elementary cycles, such as carbon and sulfur and, and so forth, and they go through the biosphere and through uh, living you know, things. And uh, the fact that this biosphere is incredibly weakened by uh, the livestock industry is why the earth system is so destabilized, right? Uh, but that didn't come out in this Bertinsky exhibition at all. And instead, his view is almost like the view of capital itself. Like he sees the world, but it is unclear, it is totally abstracted, and he can't actually see what's there. Uh, there's a certain, it, I mean, there's that sublime view, but there's no real engagement with what's actually in the world. And that's not to say that Bertinsky is not a great artist, but I think we've almost adopted the blindness of capital in some ways when we're seeing our own planet. And that's just incredibly bizarre. Uh, and I think this is reflected in the broader debate we're having over veganism. I think it's similar to the conservationists where they rely on rich people because they feel like they have to buy land now to prevent species from disappearing. And I think vegans are like, we need to eat now, <laughs> basically. We need to have, we, we don't want to harm animals now. We need to have our own soap or shampoo or whatever it is, as well as uh, vegan cheese. Um, so there is this interest in supporting vegan entrepreneurs. Uh, so I understand, I think, both uh, motivations in a way, but I think one needs to also keep in mind that this entrepreneurship or philanthropy will not get you very far, right? And we can't think that the market will actually solve the problem of animal rights abuses. And if you talk to utilitarians, which are most animal rights people, they are very conflicted about this, or they seem to have this naive faith that, yeah, lab meat will solve the problem. Like once we have lab meat, then we can ban meat, or it will outcompete meat and actually be cheaper than factory farm meat, and then the market will win, you know, and the, the market will uh, choose the right, the right uh, food. And I, I, it's just, uh, they're going to be disappointed, right? So I think... Uh, it's a problem also when I think veganism is a fad, especially a health fad. I mean, I'm always uh, wary of, of health vegans. If you're not doing it for the animals, you're doing it because you think you're going to live longer or something like that, or it's better for your skin, then uh, <laughs> you're a bad person, basically, I would say. Um, but I think we also have to remember that there are vegan traditions outside of the bourgeois, kind of like whitewashed brick Brooklyn uh, vegan style. Uh, there, you know, like Rastafarians were 
pescatarians and vegan, like Bob Marley was a vegan, uh, for instance. And obviously, there's an ancient Buddhist tradition uh, in much of South Asia and East Asia. Like when you go to China, there are Buddhist restaurants everywhere. You get very delicious vegan food made of uh, other kind of substitutes like uh, gluten. So we need to think that veganism and animal rights isn't like a bourgeois white thing. We have to realize there are animal rights activists everywhere. I was talking to uh, a friend and he spent some time in Nepal working with animal rights activists in Nepal. It's a small community of activists and they're facing very hard uh, conditions, but these traditions have been around everywhere, right? And uh, it's fine to criticize, I suppose, like vegan influencers or whatever, but the question should not be, we will just discard it. It's like conservation. Conservation has a bad history. We shouldn't just discard it. It's like, how do we radicalize it? Right, and that should be the goal. And we should be thinking like, what does it look like in uh, in this half of socialist view? I mean, would we have communal eating? Would we have vegan canteens? How are people are going to be eating? Are we going to be growing our own food in, let's say, like Havana, where you have a lot of urban gardening and all that? Um, and I think, uh, and once we have those kind of visions, then we can start to think, how do we get there? Right? How do we do things now where we have uh, push for uh, veganism, where we work and where we where we live, and and to start growing our own food again and all that, and that becomes uh, this short term goal is building into this more utopian vision. Briefly, that I, I write about neoliberals because at one point I was a conservative. I was a young young Tory. I came from a conservative family, and I grew up thinking, you know, tax cuts are good. And you know, uh, I read Milton Friedman as a teenager. I never liked Anne Rand. Uh, to my credit, I was like, this book sucks. Like, this is not good writing. But uh, I, I, went, I was part of the conservative party and all that. And then I had a crisis of faith. You know, when the Iraq War turned out very badly. You know, 2008 shook what it was already, the little that remained. Uh, clearly, this wasn't working. And then I began to find out about Marxism, because also I'm a millennial. Marxism was quite dead in Canada in the 2000s. I didn't, they didn't teach Marx at all. Uh, it was considered a, a non-entity. And I had a professor say, you know, Troy, you don't have to be a Marxist, but you should know some Marx. And, I, and then I got uh, sucked in, especially by reading New Left Review and their works on uh, 2008, because I want to understand the crisis. And that's how I came to it. But I think because I have that background, I also take neoliberalism seriously, because I know what it's like to be a neoliberal. Uh, and I think, I also think I'm an inoculated in some ways, where I think a lot of lefties turn right in middle age or whatever it is. They just get too cranky. Or, you know, they get a wokeness derangement syndrome when some Gen Z criticizes some Gen X person about pronouns and they go insane, uh, which you see, unfortunately, too often these days. Um, but because I grew up on the right, I think I'm, I'm safe from turning back, thankfully. But part of that process of losing my political direction 
uh, in my 20s uh, led me to uh, reimagine many things and uh, led me to uh, return to my childhood love of animals and uh, uh, interest in nature. Uh, so I switched from being a political historian to an environmental historian at that time. I also tried to detox my masculinity. You know, I was just a well, I was like a gym rat and, and all that, and uh, an, an insecure young man. And then I realized I was eating lots of meat, and I was like, this is stupid. You know, so I, I needed that mental break to rethink many things. Um, so that was like my, but I think I also needed a strong uh, worldview. I needed like a theoretical um, cage to to for my mind to to see the world. And I'm aware of the limits of both conservatism before, but also Marxism now. You can't see everything with a worldview. Worldviews don't offer that. But I needed to make sense of the world I was in, and I think Marxism is quite a rigorous, fruitful worldview. Um, and then I, so I became vegetarian. Uh, my brother was vegetarian. I had vegetarian friends, and I realized there were no good arguments for eating meat, basically, as in you can't be consistent. Uh, either animals have no rights at all, but then why do we get upset when people kill dogs or whatever it is? Um, and then a few years later, I was uh, in a relationship with a vegan, and she didn't even say anything, but just her presence and like, thinking, as a vegetarian, I'm still implicated in, in death, right? As in, if you're drinking milk, obviously, the milk industry is connected to the veal industry, and plenty of chickens are killed for eggs and, and all this. And I gave that up uh, as well. So that's my, my path to it. But I think it's very different from... I mean, my path to Marxism, my path to veganism are very different from most people, uh, I'm sure. It's also funny when I tell people that I, uh, I used to be conservative, you see some people uh, saying this, only whispering it back. It's, all, it's a very shameful thing for some people, I think. Uh, but, you know, we do exist, and I think it's, uh, it's a good thing. You don't want, again, you don't want Marxists writing for fascist magazines. You want to be able to turn people from the right to the left. Uh, and I think, I think we can do that, but uh, I'm an example of that, yeah. I'm not ashamed of it. It's, uh, if anything, I'm proud that I found it myself. I think when people have, like, like I knew, like, you know, uh, a lot, of, a lot of Kurdish exiles in Europe and all that, and they, they, they had famous Kurdish parents who were part of uh, socialist movements and all that. I'm like, well, if you grew up in a socialist household and you had like Lenin on your bookshelf, it's easy being a Marxist, but will you stay Marxist, right? And once you get too comfortable in your 30s and 40s or who knows what. So, uh, yeah, it's... it's it's different, uh, to be sure. It's also funny. I think Drew is like a, in a slightly similar situation, and having like our parents read our books is, is kind of funny as well, because obviously they don't agree with vegan communism, but uh, they also have been very supportive as well. Yeah.
you know, it's a co-authored book, and I'm the historian, and Drew is the scientist. And people, I think, assume that I wrote the fourth chapter, which is the fictional chapter. It's actually Drew who wrote the fictional chapter. I wrote uh, the introduction, which uh, to me wasn't fiction. To me, it's like almost like scenario planning in a way. It's imagining what is the next 25 years going to be like, and I speculate, well, there'll be a, a big pandemic killing lots of people. Uh, there will be geoengineering, there will be a trillionaire, there will be more unemployment, all these things will happen. Uh, and that is t- a foil to the rest of the book. Because again, if you're making, making a case for vegan communism, you have to say, well, that sounds crazy, but going on with what we have now is crazy, right? Um, and then the fourth chapter, my co-author, uh, he almost spontaneously started writing this utopian short story. And originally it was supposed to be only a couple paragraphs for the conclusion, and then he just kept writing and writing and writing. And then it became a chapter. And I think there's something about utopian socialism that encourages this kind of thinking, right? As in, uh, once you start to imagine what could society be like, um, then you have to think about what would gender relations be like, what would work be like, you know, what are we going to eat, you know, like all these things. and. That has always been the case, I think, with utopian socialism. Uh, if you go back to Thomas More or William Morris, I mean, there's always this urge to write about, about this and to think through these problems, right? It's like, and to me, it's funny. Again, I'm an environmental historian, and when I would go to uh, eco-lit uh, conferences, I get a sense from a lot of uh, literary critics that they want to participate in the environmental crisis in some way, to intervene in it and to offer something, but they they struggle uh, to say why do books matter when the world is dying. And it's uh, it's a bit sad, or to me, it seems clear that fiction is necessary to imagine these these futures, right? Like that is uh, the role of literature uh, now that we need, and, and not just you know, these dystopian worlds. We have enough of that. We need to think through uh, yeah, planning and, and uh, what life would be like. So that's that's what we, we draw um, that from. So Drew is actually working on a novel right now, and he's writing about a socialist revolution uh, on Titan, which is a moon of Saturn. And I think there he's trying to think through what would it be like to actually have a revolution, like how does a revolution happen, right? And he's trying to think through that problem through this, this work. Um, I personally read a lot of fiction. Uh, I actually don't read a huge amount of sci-fi, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and I think it's hard for, it's like historical fiction. It's hard to get everything right in the world and then also care about the literary craft. There's only a few people who can really can really do that. I think it's ironic that lots of people assume that we are drawing from Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed, right? I actually don't care for that book too much. I actually much prefer the Earthsea book. And for me, the Earthsea book, and I, I kind of give it a, a Hegelian reading to to, realize, to understand that book. Um, but Drew's the sci-fi head, <laughs> the two of us. When we wrote the book, uh, we were thinking about ourselves as belonging to this Marxist but still utopian um, tradition. And I think William Morris is the epitome of that, where... He has a foot in, in, in both camps. And I think it's also interesting that he was driven to imagine a very different utopia in reaction to 
uh, Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward. He didn't like this Promethean, very materialist, uh, consumerist socialism. And he wanted to imagine socialism is about educating a different kind of desire to actually be full and complete people and have good lives. And, and having a good life is about you know, art and companionship and these other things rather than having more gadgets. Um, and I think it's also interesting that his book, uh, News From Nowhere, is one of the first instances of really describing what a revolution would look like. And in the chapter, How the Change Came, he describes this in almost this gritty detail that's quite different from the rest of the book, which is quite light, lighthearted, I would say, about there being massacres and strikes and demonstrations and finally civil war, and then there was a transition to socialism. And to be honest, I wanted something like that in in the book. I, um, but you know, uh, we Drew and I agreed maybe to save that for another project. I think there still would be plenty of conflict in a social society. If anything, I wanted you know there to be capitalist terrorist groups in the countryside, you know, blowing up uh, solar panels and things like that. If you think about like scenario planning and this kind of forecasting stuff, it goes back to the Cold War, right, and the Rand um, Institute, and um, the idea was like, what would happen in uh, a nuclear war, and that's like think through how a nuclear war would take take place, and then they would use the Delphi you know, method in terms of like, experts uh, try to come up with a, a possible scenario. And then Shell, uh, the oil company, of course, is, is very famous for developing scenarios about higher oil prices before uh, the oil shock. And it's a, it's a weird mix of, I think, really uh, hard-nosed, kind of like no-nonsense military or business thinking. And then there is like that speculative fun aspect. Like Pierre Wark, who was the uh, the forecaster at Shell, I mean, he used to uh, uh, practice Buddhism and, and, and do yoga and things like this. And he was uh, like a very spiritual person. And that was actually necessary for these kind of flights of fancy. And there even um, have been similar exercises to prepare for avian flu uh, uh, pandemics, so people have to practice what would it be like to actually have a, an outbreak, um, to to prepare, but also to kind of expand their imagination of what it, it would be like. And the Soviets had their own uh, version of like the business guru um, kind of role playing game, almost like a Dungeons and Dragons kind of thing, uh, as a managerial practice. So you kind of see it throughout the twentieth century, um, but it's. I think you know we can, we can draw on these tools and think about these things, but I, I think it's also revealing the limits of these practices. I mean, you were talking about these uh, climate model uh, pathways put out by the IPCC, and they still assume that there's going to be capitalism, right? There's no socialist version to this. So there is a, a limit to one's imagination as well. And I would really want to work with scientists and actually develop like a socialist integrated assessment model, right? Like what, what would vegan communism look like and actually uh, model that, right? And see how it would work. That's a big project, maybe something for the future. But I think as, as planning theorists, we need to be uh, more serious and more capable of these projects. We have to remember that the whole birth of the environmental movement was 
linked to fear of pesticides with Rachel Carson and all that, but also had to do with Daniela Meadows and, and the team at MIT uh, working on limits to growth, uh, because that had never been done before, this kind of large-scale uh, planning uh, and forecasting. So I think we need to re re-engage with that. If I was a, a good academic, I mean, I, I finished my PhD, I got a postdoc at Harvard, and I was like, wow, this is the start of a great academic career. I should have worked hard and finished my book and then published it with a nice academic press and then get a nice tenure-track job somewhere. And instead, uh, I met Drew, and when he was 21, he was an undergrad, and he liked some of my other eco-socialist writing, and he's like he wanted to he wanted to model what I had written because he's a climate modeler, and uh, that was too good an opportunity to give up. And instead of writing a twenty thousand word short manifesto for Verso, we kept writing more and more and more until it was like seventy five thousand words, and that ate up my postdoc. So. Uh, and now I'm just collecting postdocs at this point. <laughs> but uh, I also, to me, it's like, what's the point of being a, a good academic when the university is dying, when the world is dying? I somehow can't get too excited about writing a book that 200 people will read and writing articles that would be behind paywalls. I mean, what's, uh, what's the point? And this project has been uh, fun and also a way to deal with my own... Uh, I suppose, ecological grief uh, and feelings of impotence. So that's why we did it. I, at some point, I should write that book <laughs> because I, I think there's been a, a booming uh, scholarship on neoliberalism over the last 25 years and uh, of intellectual historians studying neoliberalism seriously. People such as uh, Murawski, who I mentioned earlier, but also Dietrich Pleva, Quince Bodian, Melinda Cooper, uh, and many others have written uh, very good works taking neoliberal ideas seriously and reconstructing their networks and their ideas. And I think we can't take the, we can't underestimate the enemy. We have to understand the enemy. Right, and this is important. And we also need to understand what they're going to do regarding the environmental crisis. And there's been remarkably little work on neoliberalism and, and the environment. There's some decent stuff. Like for example, Rebecca Lave's work on restoration uh, um, stream ecology uh, stuff is, is very nice. But we need many more uh, works like this. So my work there is trying to understand uh, the neoliberal critique of externality, because uh, externality is a neoclassical idea, but neoliberals d don't actually like neoclassical economics. I think that's a mistake a lot of people make, um, because neoclassical economics does not, does not ask questions of knowledge. It assumes we know everything. We know uh, these various you know, utility functions and all this, and so we, they can make very nice equilibrium uh, formulas. And 
But a neoliberal would say, how do you know these things? How do you know someone's marginal utility, right? They would say even like an entrepreneur in their own firm doesn't know these functions. Uh, it's the market that uh, is collecting all this knowledge. And we are constantly acting in, in ignorance. And when we do act, we're just reacting to these price signals, which are a very kind of fragmented and partial form of knowledge, but it's all we can have. Otherwise, we are ignorant and, and useless. And people are not homo economicus. We're not rational actors for neoliberals. We're actually incredibly stupid, uh, useless, ignorant people. And that's why neoliberalism is this anti-humanist utopian project. It's a, a utopia to liberate the market rather than to liberate humanity. Um, so the question is, how do they deal with the environment? And uh, they didn't like externality as a concept when it emerged in 1920 for the work of uh, Arthur Pigou. And then it took them a long time to think about uh, an alternative to that. And they were working on this problem for decades, and finally they came up with cap-and-trade in the 1960s. And it took some time before cap-and-trade was actually applied to environmental problems, first in fisheries in the 1980s, and then for acid rain, and then finally for carbon markets. And there's many other markets. Basically, anything can be made into a cap-and-trade market. And then I also looked at the emergence of neoliberal cornucopianism because of the Limits to Growth project. In the 70s, neoclassical economists had to admit that if there wasn't a limitless energy source, then the Malthusians were correct. Yeah, so uh, the Malthusians at some level were winning that argument in the 1970s. And it wasn't until 1980 when you have Julian Simon, who's this uh, obscure business professor in Illinois, uh, argues that we have to have this faith that the market will always produce these alternatives and we will find these limitless energy sources such as non-conventional fossil fuels, actually. Uh, and that's become... Uh, I mean, it's a very weak uh, philosophical and theoretical construction, but it's become the, the default position in many ways. So that older Malthusian limits to growth approach uh, has fallen away. And I think even socialists are some kind of Simonians uh, at this point. And then the last thing I want to write about is um, Eleanor Ostrom's work on the commons, because everyone thinks that Ostrom is like an anarchist uh, left-wing thinker, but she actually was a neoliberal. And she's from the public choice school of neoliberalism. And her work on the commons emerges in the 70s as a reaction to white flight in the US. And she wants to prevent municipal governments from expanding to incorporate the suburbs so they could tax um, bourgeois right, white people. And she says, no, we need these small communities and allow people to move around and to choose the communities they want to live in. And this was always a very conservative project. So when I found out that she was a neoliberal, I felt, again, very betrayed in a way. I've been going to so many left-wing events, and everyone ends with the commons. We need commoning and all this. And it turns out we actually were, have been duped in some ways by, uh, by the neoliberals. And what she was trying to do is she's like uh, Simon, where she's trying to argue against Malthusianism. She's writing against Garrett Hardin. Because the neoliberals saw... Malthusianism as leading towards government control to, to control either population or scarce resources. And again, that's what they want to prevent is control on, on the market. So these are new liberal projects. But it's not to say that Ostrom can't be useful for the left. I mean, in my book, we're drawing on Hayek quite a bit. But one needs to have a self-aware and critical approach 
when you take ideas from the enemy. And I just haven't seen uh, socialists and anarchists really have a nuanced property theory, I suppose. They're just like, quoting her and then leaving it there, right? Um, and then in the book, we this culminates in geoengineering, which happened uh, in a large experiment on the west coast of Canada in 2012, where there was an entrepreneur who wanted to collect carbon credits from a cap-and-trade program who was working with an indigenous group, which was like a small commons. Uh, and then this entrepreneurial solution in the Simonian way was, was geoengineering, where they dumped basically paint chips uh, into the ocean, which would act as iron fertilization for an algae bloom uh, that hopefully would sequester carbon. It didn't really work, but... Uh, this is where all these different neoliberal strands come together. And I think we have to applaud the neoliberals, again, for their creativity, where they don't just make one solution, they make 10 solutions, and then they see where which one works. And then they also combine in all these weird ways. And then people, other people, even non-neoliberals, will take up their ideas and do things with them as well. Like, for example, the... Uh, bioenergy and car uh, carbon capture and sequestration, the BECs, that comes from this random Swedish guy who's interested in uh, cap and trade in 2000, right? And even something like geoengineering, the neoliberals had no idea about geoengineering until the 1990s, right? So I think um, when you're creating a suit of ideas uh, that exists in the public sphere and then they begin to mingle in certain ways and generate new possibilities, that's a very strong position to be in where even your enemies are taking your ideas. And the left environmentalists need to take ideas more seriously and come up with something similar, unfortunately, yeah. We called the book Half-Earth Socialism because we actually weren't allowed to call it uh, vegan communism. Um, my co-author, I don't know if I should be saying this, but I might get him in trouble. He, as an American scientist, he's not able to use the word communism. Otherwise, he can't get federal funding. So uh, that's a problem. Uh, so we had to use the word socialism, which is also that distinction between socialism, communism, I think matters more to non-Marxists than to Marxists, <laughs> ironically. But uh, so we called the book Half Earth Socialism, and we didn't call it you No know, Anthropocene Socialism or Climate Change Socialism, because uh, which I think are more trendy, easier to access, you know, titles. Because we wanted to center the role of biodiversity loss, which is what the Half Earth is supposed to address. Uh, we also want to talk about land scarcity, right? And, and its relation to many other problems. And we also wanted to highlight this kind of humble position towards uh, the earth, which is like, we will only take half, right? And that's why we called it 
half-earth socialism. And the half-earth comes from E.O. Wilson's work from the 1960s and a group of uh, the South African uh, environmental uh, organizers associated with the Wild Foundation and these Americans from the 90s um, in the Wildlands Network around Dave Foreman. So these are these three groups that are connected to each other. They, they write in the same journals. They know each other for a long time. And unfortunately, again, if you talk about any environmentalists, maybe except Rachel Carson, I think she wasn't evil, but it seems like every other environmentalist is like a Malthusian, basically, or worse than that, as in quite racist. Uh, like Dave Foreman worked very closely with neo-Nazis in uh, the U.S., uh, for instance. And we thought that E.O. Wilson, uh, the entomologist, at least he wasn't as bad as some of these other guys. He didn't work for apartheid, you know, South Africa and all that. And then after we published the book, it turns out uh, that his correspondence was published and he had been uh, writing to this race realist, like a total, you know, pseudoscience racist idiot who, you know, measures IQ and dick size and, and all this. And he was like, I really like your work, but I can't publicly support you. And we're like, oh my God, like even E.O. Wilson like, is that bad. So, and, for, and this is the problem. And this is the reason why people hear about large scale conservation, they get very wary, right? Because it has a very bad past. And in the book, we're, we're pretty harsh on the conservationists. And uh, I, I, I talked to uh, one conservationist in particular at the Wild Foundation about his own work and, and about the book we were writing. And I think they are like aware, but they don't want to really dig into that past. Right? They don't talk about the, the racism and the anti-socialism of, of their founders. And that's a... That's a problem. And I think people are not going to trust conservationists. And conservationists have to realize they cannot achieve their goals of protecting large parts of the world without having that self-criticism, but also without building a broader coalition, including decolonial movements, indigenous movements, uh, but also having environmentalists and animal rights people and socialists on their side as well. Right now, they just want to find a bunch of billionaires to buy up land, and then they rewild it. And then those rewilded areas will actually be exotic meat farms, because people like Ted Turner or the Toros uh, program in Europe, which is a, a backbred aurochs, like a wild cow, they actually say, well, we'll just you know turn these into ranches to sell bison or or, or, or uh, aurochs uh, meat, and that will then also depend on ecotourism or hunting or something like that. So it's predicated on having rich people and carnivores uh, support your project, and that's not the con that's not the conservation or the rewilding I want to support. Right? I, I think we have to imagine that rewilding is not going to be a profitable activity, right? But it's a necessary activity, and that's why it has to be undertaken in conjunction with many other goals and part of large socialist plans. And we have to figure out how can we do this without disadvantaging marginalized people? How can we do this fairly as well? Uh, but if we can do that, we can not only stop the mass extinction event and therefore potentially stop what we call the Anthropocene, which will really be based on the fossil record. So if we actually stop the mass extinction event, uh, that will be uh, important as well. But we also will sequester you know, hundreds of gigatons uh, of carbon and by doing so, we will cool down the earth, right? And that is part of this, this broader project. So there's unlimited you know, benefits, basically. And we don't need that much of the world, 
right? People hear half earth and they're like, oh, what are we going to do with all that land? How can we not uh, not use that land? If we not if we don't eat meat, then we simply do not need that much territory, right? We only need about ten or twenty percent of the world for uh, uh, electrical, you know, renewable energy infrastructure and for uh, and to feed ourselves. And the rest of the world can be wild, right? I think we forget that. We would be in a much worse position if we were obligate carnivores and we were somehow super intelligent tigers that had uh, evolved uh, you know, this civilization and we had to eat meat. Luckily, we're not, <laughs> so we can solve this problem. I think people don't talk about how land scarcity is a problem, but we're already seeing that issue. So when uh, a lot of governments and countries are building out renewable energy uh, infrastructure, there's this conflict between you know, building that infrastructure and then having conservation as a goal, because they want to build them in ecologically sensitive areas or put them very close to parks or in parks. right? And we're seeing this in many places. And, th and then someone like... Uh, a, a journalist at the e Economist would say, well, I thought environmentalists want to deal with the climate uh, problem, and now it turns out they don't. They care about their spotted owls uh, more than uh, than having wind turbines and their NIMBYs and all this. And uh, But the thing is, like, what are we trading, right? Are we going to give up meat, or are we going to sacrifice uh, more endangered species, right? And we have to see that, that balance. And I think... If you look at Spain, for instance, Spain has this massive land deficit because of its huge livestock industry. So uh, Spain could not grow enough food uh, to, to support all the animals and people who live here. The shortage is around uh, 6 million hectares, like a, a fifth of Spain, which comes from Argentina and Brazil, right? Um, and then if, in addition to that, if you actually had to build out a huge amount of uh, renewable infrastructure in Spain. Um, renewable infrastructure takes up 10 or 100 times more space compared to fossil fuel infrastructure. And if Spain wanted to do something about rewilding, well, you just wouldn't have space for all these things, right? So one of them has to go. And that's part of the gambit of the book. We're putting forward this, you know, not very popular idea of vegan communism. Um, but we're saying you have to make a trade-off somewhere. You can either have, uh, you know, renewable you know, energy. Um, you can have, you know, these high living standards. You can have uh, the, the natural world that's fairly well preserved. You can have meat. But you have to trade off somewhere. You can't have everything that you want. So some people may say instead of renewables, we'll have fossil fuels and geoengineering or we'll have nuclear power or something like that. Uh, or maybe you don't want to lower living standards and you're okay with mass extinction, but you have to make that that trade-off. Um, there's no future where there aren't any trade-offs. And I think what we're saying is that we should have this debate of what are people willing to, to give up, right? Um, because we, in some ways, we do have lots of, of space, but only if we give up the, the meat industry. I think when people also hear about conservation, they just assume it's a global south project. And, you know, people should be looking at the global north, 
of course. I mean, Europe has actually the least original forest of any continent, right? If you look at the rating of uh, nature protection from the um, International Conservation Union uh, for Nature, they have uh, one to five, I believe, uh, ranks in terms of how well protected an ecosystem is. And the first two are kind of like good, good quality, you know, ecologically um, uh, preserved uh, areas. And only 2% of Europe is actually like a real, you know, ecosystem more or less. And the rest of it would be like three to five in terms of the ranking. And this is little more than like a farm with some birds in the hedges or something like that. And so Europe needs to rewild. Europe needs to return uh, megafauna such as bison and aurochs and, and wolves. And, and there's actually only one place in Europe uh, that has the full complement of megafauna, and that's around Chernobyl. That's the only place where you have lynx and goats and you know, bison and all that, which is pretty pathetic. Right? And one shouldn't romanticize Chernobyl. I mean, this is an area where the animals do suffer uh, radiation sickness and you know, they suffer lots of problems there as well. So I think we should be uh, imagining this as a project everywhere. And then we begin to see which uh, countries would have more problems actually having a fully renewable uh, energy sector because of the land use and having rewilding. And if we actually give up meat uh, production, even really densely populated industrialized places like Germany, for instance, would, or Japan, they would actually have a chance at meeting those goals. But if they don't have energy quotas and they eat meat, there's no way that's possible. It feels like a shame to even take these eco-modernist arguments seriously. Like they're so idiotic, right? And the fact that the left is eating a lot of this stuff up is very depressing. Um, but people like Schellenberger and the younger Nordhaus, I kind of see him as like a Napoleon III kind of figure. He's like the nephew of the more famous Nordhaus. But anyways... Um, yeah, they can say this, but they're not understanding what kind of crisis we're in. So there's some really nice work by the Australian philosopher Clive Hamilton, and he writes about eco-modernism, uh, and he says they don't understand what the Anthropocene means. So when they say we'll have like a good Anthropocene and all that, like we'll be masters, we'll act as gods or whatever it is, uh, the whole point of the Anthropocene is that the earth is not bouncing back. Right? That is what the Anthropocene means. We have entered a new epoch that is where the Earth system is completely destabilized. Right? And therefore, that uh, resilience has been lost. And then, so we will not return to a stable condition in 50 years, in 100 years, in 1,000 years. If we continue what we're doing, it's going to, like, no one knows where the Earth system is going to end up. I mean, things can get extremely hairy. For example, you know, once we finally kill the oceans entirely, and I say the, the plankton also die off, suddenly that carbon sink is going to be gone, right? And then we're not going to be absorbing half as much carbon as we were before, and we're really going to heat up, right, for instance. Um, 
there's going to be constant zoonotic diseases going through and all that. So we need to actually step away and unbuild the world we have created to a large extent to allow the Earth system to become more stable, right? Uh, because it's not, we're not in a situation where the Earth will, you know, heal itself or whatever it is. Uh, these animals are going extinct. I mean, they are representing um, uh, genealogies that go back, you know, hundreds of millions of years, and they're just going to be gone, right? We're going to see a very different world in terms of the animals that inhabited once we actually go through a, uh, an extinction event. So this is... This is wishful thinking, and I think the technologies they want to rely on are not very impressive technologies. If it's, only, it's almost like neoliberals have uh, so much power and are winning so easily, they don't even need to invest in their stupid technologies that will get us out of the uh, economic and environmental crisis. There's only about $20 million a year spent on geoengineering research, which is peanuts. It's only a few labs really working on it. And you know, I was at Harvard. I would go to the, the geoengineering seminar, and the geoengineers there would say, we have no baseline data. We don't have very good models. We don't really know what we're doing, and we can't know what we're doing. The Earth system is too complex. We just have to start doing it, right? Which is not very uh, reassuring. And then we also have to um, imagine what's going to happen. Even the, uh, the, the geoengineers say, this is a dangerous technology. Its closest equivalent is nuclear weapons, and it could easily start a nuclear war. Right? They're saying this as well. And these are the people who want to do geoengineering. So uh, the other technologies that say like nuclear, that say like fast breeder reactors are going to give us like, this clean, limitless uh, energy supply, they just don't work. They keep catching fire all the time. Like, they... Governments around the world have spent tens of millions of dollars trying to make these things work. They don't. They don't work. And, and ordinary uh, nuclear reactors are not very safe. And we're going to run out of good uranium very quickly. And then it's going to become a, a carbon-intensive resource. So it's just uh, they don't have any good ideas. I mean, again, they're not even really worth talking about. It's like a Panglossian idea that we live in the best of all possible worlds. Or you know, Hegel's like this as well, as in uh, God has like moved history in a certain direction and things will be fine. And Hamilton talks about uh, the eco-modernists having their own theodicy, uh, which is this view that you know, what we're doing when we're destroying the earth, actually it's a good thing. Right? There are lots of socialists who are writing for this fascist magazine called Compact, which I'm not sure you know. And more and more socialists are writing there, which is obviously very disturbing. And uh, one of them actually wrote an article saying, yeah, extinction is good, actually, and uh, in this fascist magazine. So this is where I think also that the left needs to have its own center of gravity, needs to have its own utopia. Otherwise, we're going to be facing the centrifugal force and, and losing people to fascism, right? Like people hate liberals so much that they'll gravitate towards fascists and this is this is how this is a real problem right now actually um and i think there's like hatred of nature and this desire for gadgets and stupid luxury uh is, is part of that but i think it's also it, it's really uh an aesthetic conflict as in people don't like you know the pmc 
you know, bourgeois uh, habitus, right? They don't like the hippies and all this. And that's how I think these conservative socialists are seeing these problems. They're seeing them almost in terms of identity politics, even though they say they hate identity politics, but that's how they actually are fighting these fights. And, And so I think when people want to have these macho technologies and to say, who cares about nature will dominate it, it is very much this aesthetic posture of uh, like the tough tech bro kind of thing. I think, you know, when one writes, one shouldn't write to write something that you think will be popular, right? I shouldn't be writing like, oh, I think people will like this. I, I'm writing, you know, my co-author and I, we're writing to solve certain problems. We're trying to think through certain problems. And writing helps us organize our thoughts and, and see the problems and see the gaps. And so we're doing that. And if people find that interesting and like that uh, thought experiment, then we begin talking to people and all that. And that's been happening a lot. And I think, if anything, the problem has been the reverse for environmentalists and the left, where you're thinking too much about what will other people think about this project. So that's why socialists, they don't tell you really how socialism works. You know, uh, The Frankfurt School talks about the builder for both. You, know, you cannot talk about utopia. You cannot talk about so- socialism. Um, and then I think environmentalists are afraid of scaring people where they don't want to tell people hey, you can't have your big house, you can't fly, you know, every two weekends, you know. Uh, and, and therefore they just say we'll just have this like minor shift. But I think people are aware that the problems are very serious. So we're almost being condescending, I think, when we do that. And uh, there is a certain, I think, dissatisfaction with the existing debate. We're not having the right debate. So when I say we're, we're preaching, you know, to to the, uh, a very small choir of vegan Marxists, I mean this is a. Uh, I think we're also creating a new kind of group, right? So people who are interested in planning, planning theory, they are, are part of this. Animal rights people, who are dissatisfied with like market-based, you know, utilitarian philosophy, they they are part of this. You know, socialists who want to be more critical of the Promethean legacy. And, and socialism, you know. And then what we're trying to do is all these different groups, you know, I can go on about feminists and conservationists and all that, and they all are uh, missing something in some way or they're contradicting with each other in some way, and that's why we don't have a coherent block, right, that could oppose neoliberalism or fascism, whatever the enemy is. And so we're just fighting with each other. But if every group gives something up, right, as in if in Marxists give up this dream of dominating nature, then they can talk to animal rights people. If animal rights people talk to ecologists and say, well, maybe we shouldn't be trying to stop all harm in the animal kingdom, because some people want to do that. They want to actually stop predation, right? Uh, and we have to realize the world is super complex. The ecology is very complex. We have to respect the autonomy of animals, even if that causes harm to animals. You know, as, uh, There's obviously a lot to be learned from 
from feminism where there's lots of toxic masculinity amongst environmentalists and the left as well. That's the main reason why people like eating meat is to feel macho and all this. And if we put all these things together, then it adds up to a different coalition. And that's kind of the gambit of the book. Um, and you know, I, I have some hope that you know, some people have been writing to us or activists and, and artists and, and so forth. But this is a, a big project to actually change how things are. And I don't think our book's going to be the one that does it. We want there to be many different utopias. We want to debate about utopias. We want to reactivate the left and the environmentalist movement's imagination. And then I think once we begin to imagine what it looks like to get out of the crisis uh, and we be serious about it, like actually plan like, what does it look like to decarbonize this industry or to have vegan agriculture or to rewild this region, then we can actually convince many other people that this is a viable vision. And because capitalism's not working very well. I think you have to look at it from the, a capitalist or a neoliberal perspective. It gets harder and harder to sell capitalism to people. I mean, there's no jobs, you never buy a home, you know. Uh, compared to the 1950s or 60s when capitalism seemed vibrant and uh, people's lives were actually getting better, it was harder to be a socialist. I think it's it should be easy now, right? Uh, but we just have to put those counterproposals uh, forward and hopefully build that coalition. With utopia, the word, it originally was a pun, right? So it's the good place and like no place. So it, that's, that tension has always been around. The way I see utopia is really drawn from Otto Neurath's work, who's an important influence on the book. I mean, he's a philosopher, he's a designer, he uh, was a war planner and all that. And he thought utopianism, or what he calls scientific utopianism, had to be uh, about practical futures, right? These are technical thought experiments, and that will help us imagine uh, what we should do as a society, and that's the basis for socialist democracy. We're debating these different futures, and I think that's uh, a great project, right? I mean, this is how we see it. I think in terms of whether what we propose in the book, this vegan communist vision, uh, is possible or not, is... Once, you know, I, I'm not delusional, right? Like I definitely realize uh, vegan, you know, communism is like a niche within a niche. Like you talk to an average Marxist, they'll get angry at you, and, and Marxists are not very numerous to begin with. So uh, this is a small community, uh, to be sure. The thing is, I think it's important to think impractically, to imagine what does it look like to actually get out of the crisis. Because I think right now, we're just like, oh, we'll have some electric cars, or we'll be vegan, or maybe fair trade. And then there's no sense of how it adds up, right? And so the left is just doing these little things, or we're doing these reactive fights to defend pensions or something like that. But there's nothing cohering the project or propelling something forward. We're just defending, basically. Uh, so I think utopianism is important for that. In terms of also the practicality, I think... It would be easier to be nihilistic and say, we're all screwed. Humans are inherently bad. We're just a cruel, 
mean species. Uh, we hate other animals or something like this. And therefore, we're doomed to destroy the world, right? And if that were the case, then what's the point, right? And then you can engage in these like, very weird environmentalist fantasies that you see within the green movement of a world without people, right? Because they can't imagine a utopia where we actually can get along with each other and get along with the rest of nature. And I think the, the more infuriating part is that I think it's possible to have an ecologically stable society and to have a just society. It's just very difficult to be sure. And we need to go very far to actually get there. But I don't think it's an impossible. I think the problems of socialism are serious, as in what is socialist democracy? Uh, you know, what is, how do we make planning work if we don't rely on markets? These are very serious problems, but I think they are uh, you know, feasible to solve. Yeah. In the last few days, you know, I've been in Spain and um, talking to activists and talking to uh, people involved in politics here. And, and this is also the same when I've been seeing friends in Germany. And it's like when you do push forward certain proposals, like in Germany, for instance, they want to ban uh, having um, you know fossil fuel-based heating in, in new homes, and they want to use like heat pumps instead, and it's been a ferocious counterattack, right? Obviously, in Spain, you have Alberto Garzón saying we need to eat less meat, and there's been a ferocious counterattack. And I think the left and environmentals have been caught off guard by how vicious uh, the right can be, and how how they're willing to lie, misconstrue your words, and and all this, and people just complain about polarization. Right? It's like only if we were less polarized. I think we have to expect it's going to be a really brutal fight, especially if the right thinks it might be losing power. Right, And we should also be expect to be uh, betrayed by the center-left as well. I mean, this is what happened with Corbyn. This is what happened with Sanders. When they had a chance of winning, the center-left tried to undermine them. Uh, this is not going to be easy to push our ideas forward. Uh, and we have to be ready for, for that kind of counterattack. And I think at some level, we are used to polite politics when it was very low stakes. When everyone was a neoliberal in both parties, in many societies, it was polite because everyone agreed on everything. And now when there's real conflict, it's going to get ugly. You know, Naomi Klein, she wrote her book, uh, This Changes Everything. And, and it was about how climate change uh, is seen as uh, like a Trojan horse for socialism amongst uh, the right. And she says they're right, as in like, they're correct about that, because we need to have socialism to deal with climate change. And then a few years later, she wrote another book, and she was saying how you know, well, uh, conservatives are saying we're going to take meat away from people, and that's been a big thing, even outside of Spain. And she says, well, but we won't do that, right? And I think... Um, before she was saying the conservatives realize the logical endpoint of these politics better than the left or the center does. And that was true with climate change, but it's not true with, with meat, right? And I think it is true in both cases, and we need to uh, engage in those hard debates, be it meat consumption or how we build our homes and all that. We can't imagine that it's just a bunch of big, bad corporations as the cause of everything. And then we will, we don't have to change how we live. Like we, will, we will have to change how we live. And socialism is all about politicizing everything and debating everything. So we should expect those conflicts. Would 
Pedro Sanchez call himself a socialist, although he's the leader of the Socialist Party? I mean, uh, does Keir Starmer say that he's a socialist? Like, I think, uh, you know, people talk about the Pasochification, as in, uh, named after the Greek um, center-left party, where you have these these fairly, you know, neoliberal but ostensibly left-wing parties who become very weak after 2008, and that's the situation we're in, we're in now. And the few strong left parties we, we do have, um, such as like Die Linke in Germany and all that, they, they obviously have many problems, and I think even they don't really know what socialism is. I, you know, I'm not a politician, and I'm not trying to write uh, a bestseller, so I think some people on the left, they avoid using the term socialist. They talk about post-capitalism often, and that's a way to like, not scare people off. But I don't really care <laughs> about that. I, again, I, I'm writing to, to think uh, clearly about uh, the problems I find interesting. And I think we shouldn't be afraid to call ourselves what we are. Uh, I mean, I'm Canadian, and there's plenty of anti-socialist uh, sentiment there. And in the U.S., it is much worse. It is, it, it's it's kind of crazy how uh, scared people are to use the word. I remember going to a Bernie Sanders um, talk, and then he was saying the word socialism, and there was like a tremor that went through the room. He was saying the taboo word, and it was very bizarre. Um, but I think we have to tell people that capitalism is not working, liberalism is not working. You know, when Margaret Thatcher said there is no alternative, I think one could say there still is no alternative to capitalism but socialism, right? That's the only thing we, we have still. Uh, and we have to revive it. And we have to say this is why it failed in the past, right? And this is how we can succeed in the future. And we have to be very rigorous and critical about the socialist past. I think we shouldn't just be saying you know, whatever happened in the Soviet Union or the Eastern Bloc or whatever, that was not true socialism, right? I think we have to recognize there were many smart, well-intentioned people in those societies who were trying to make socialism work, and they struggled, right? And there definitely was plenty of cliques of corrupt, you know, cynical people who were thwarting uh, any kind of progress. But there also are significant problems in a social society about how do you make sure that an authoritarian government does not emerge and how do you deal with uh, economic problems if you're not relying on market mechanisms? How do you deal with informational and motivational problems so you don't just have constant shortages and inefficiencies and all that? And we need to work through those problems and I think the left has been avoiding those things. But I think if you tell people you know, we're self-critical, we're self-aware, here are these problems, we're not going to pretend that Marx was right about everything, you know, but we still can use that tradition to understand what capitalism is and also use these experiments and planning in China, in Cuba, in Chile, in the Soviet Union to inform our own vision of planning and here's how we're going to try to solve these difficult problems. And if you tell people that and begin to make more sophisticated policy proposals and models, then I think people would say, yeah, capitalism's not going to solve the, these problems. We're going to have like one trillionaire who owns everything and no one else has anything else and the world's going to be dead with mass extinction and pandemics and so forth. Let's try something else, right? And I think we should call it socialism. And if anything, I even don't, I don't like the term uh, democratic socialist. I think it sounds so 
almost self-loathing in a way. It's like you have to specify that you like democracy. I think you know you don't hear people say I'm a democratic neoliberal. I'm a democratic liberal, even right. I mean, there's plenty of liberal societies that were not democratic. I mean, England in the 19th century or the 18th century had a very restricted uh, voting franchise. Right. Obviously, the same thing in the U.S. So I think we should not be so uh, afraid to say what we believe in. Yeah. Bird watchers talk about their spark bird, and the spark bird is the bird that gets you into bird watching, the bird that draws you in. Because you know, you go the first few times, you have your binoculars, you don't know what you're looking at. You're like, what am I doing? You know, and uh, I could be reading a book or something instead. And then you see a bird, and then you're you think well, that's amazing, and then then you need that, it's, a, it's an addiction, and you need that hit again. And for me, I was in Toronto in 2020 during the pandemic, and it was locked down, and there's nothing to do. I would ride my bike to the old city dump where they would just dump rubble into the lake. And this actually rewilded uh, uh, spontaneously, and it's uh, actually a very biodiverse area. It's definitely not a pristine <laughs> example of, of nature, but it's a very interesting place, and it has the largest cormorant colony in North America, and there's tens of thousands of mating pairs. I forget if it's 60 or 100,000 birds are there. It's, uh, it's immense. And I remember looking uh, from one side of this you know, trash heap nature preserve to another side, um, and I could see that the the beach was black with cormorants. I, and I just had not seen so many birds in quite a long time. And that kind of sublime feeling of being overwhelmed by by nature uh, was very nice. And so my 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 spark bird was the double-crested cormorant. And I've always liked cormorants, I would say. Um, there's lovely cormorants in Europe as well. And I think also as a birder, you begin to think, oh, I would really like to see this bird. I would really, really like to see that bird. And whenever I go to a new city, I go online and see what are the good birding spots and what birds you might see. And then you get excited. And there's many nice birds in Spain. Uh, I have a friend here, and she wants to take me to the uh, Ebro, Ebro Delta. So maybe I'll go there next spring. And... Uh, but it's, it's a great hobby, highly recommend it. And I always also like taking people out to see birds. And there also is a, a, a socialist tradition for bird watching in some ways. Uh, the Timmerwald Conference 
1917, uh, I believe, during the war, when all the socialists in Europe met in Switzerland, uh, they pretended it was a bird-watching conference, right? Uh, another thing was that Rosa Luxemburg was a very good bird-watcher, and she would bird-watch from prison, and her letters are full of birds, actually. Uh, so, so it's nice.